Hey you, guess what? This is the Sloan cast. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Rob. And I'm Ken. And we are two super duper Sloan fans who are very excited uh, to have Sloan cast be a reality. Uh, two hardcore fans who've been in love with this band for a quarter of a century. And uh, we're going to get kicked in here with episode number one, where we're talking about an interesting topic, which is uh, a period of time, uh, 1998, 1999, where the band were extremely busy, very prolific, if you will. And uh, the episode that we recorded was so long that we decided we'd split it into two different parts. We'll have part one today, and we'll have part two coming out shortly, so uh, stay tuned for that. So, uh, Ken, why don't we just cut into the first episode here for everybody, and we'll see you guys at the end of the episode. Thanks very much. Hey, everybody, you're listening to Sloancast. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for clicking that button. My name's Rob. I'm joined by my friend Ken here. Say hi, Ken. How's it going? <laughs> and uh, this is the inaugural episode of the Sloancast. Uh, we're both very excited to dig into this topic. The topic, of course, being our favorite band of all time, the greatest band of all time, Sloan, uh, Chris Murphy, Andrew Scott, Jay Ferguson, Patrick Pantlin. Um, as far as I'm concerned, there is no greater band in the world ever. I've certainly lost friends having this conversation, trying to argue them over the Beatles and stuff um, online. But anyway, uh, Ken and I have been talking and wanting to do this for a little while. So here we go. <clears throat> this is your deep dive into Sloan, everything Sloan. Uh, we're going to cover, hopefully, all the albums, every topic that you can think of. And if, if, hey, if you're out there listening and you think of something that you want us to touch on, you please get in touch with us. Sloancast on Instagram. We'll put out our other uh, social media stuff later. But at this point, it's Sloancast on Instagram. And uh, yeah, get in touch. Let us know what you want to talk about about. Um, so we're going to quickly just go through a bit of an intro today, just letting you know who we are and kind of where we came from and how we came upon the band and, uh, you know, little details like that. And then we'll get right to the uh, issue at hand, which is a spe- sort of a special intro episode for everybody here kind of focusing on a very specific time period in the band's career. Uh, so Ken, why don't you start us off? Go ahead, sir. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken. Um, before I delve into my own personal bio, I think it's important to make a note here about how we're going to conceive of this podcast. Rob and myself are really two super fans of the band, and we want to make this podcast for other fans of the band, both super and casual, and also just for everybody who craves deep discussions and deep dives into the band's catalog and into their history. That being said, I'm definitely not the definitive expert. You know, I'm going to do my part in helping to moderate this discussion with Rob. Um, And our goal for the podcast over the course of the coming episodes is to bring on other super fans, uh, to bring on real experts about the band and their history, um, and also to, to... to fuel some engagement in our social media presence. So stay tuned and be sure to interact with us on our Instagram channel at Sloancast. And I'll say a few words about myself. I'm originally from Ottawa via Halifax. I then landed in Germany in 2009 and I've been there ever since. I'm what I would consider to be a second generation of Sloan fan, and we'll get into the different generations of Sloan fans from our perspective at a later point in this podcast, but keeping it short, if the first generation of Sloan fans is from the band's inception in 1991 through to about their, let's say, um, initial breakup in 1995, I was a fan that came on board shortly thereafter. My first contact with this band was thanks to a buddy of mine, uh, Angus Mortimer. If you're listening, shout out to you. 
And in 1996, you know, I'd, I'd grown up um, a fan of all kinds of different music. I was fortunate enough to have two older sisters who influenced my musical taste, but my parents also had a big influence uh, over what I was listening to, as I think is the experience for a lot of people out there. So, you know, my, my first um, my first album was Billy Joel's Stormfront from 1989. Um, my first concert was Rod Stewart on the Vagabond Heart Tour. And I was big into the Beatles in the mid-90s, as were a lot of kids my age at that point in time. The anthology had just dropped, I believe, in 1995, and I was really on that train. I had a, you know, a little Beatles fan website on Tripod, so... Um, they were what was influencing my own rock music lens at, at that point in time in the mid-90s. And so my buddy Angus came up to me one day, and he knew that I was into the Beatles, and he was into the Beatles himself, and he said, hey, you know what, I just saw this great new music video on Much Music, and it turned out to be the Everything You've Done Wrong video from One Chord to Another. And so I was watching quite a bit of Much Music at that point in time. And uh, I think later on that week, I chanced upon the video in the regular rotation during the afternoon and was, of course, taken aback by just that style of power pop that didn't really exist anywhere else in the CanCon canon at that point in time. So... You know, I was I was a young kid um, coming about his mature musical sensibilities, and as somebody who had an appreciation for rock music from the sixties, seventies, and eighties, um, the stylings that Sloan had put out with one chord to another, and especially with everything you've done wrong, really grabbed my attention. So that was the first um, that was the first time that I'd seen or heard the band consciously. Interestingly enough, my sister now claims that she um, must have been playing Twice Removed in our house in the years prior, and that I might have maybe gained a little bit of insight into Sloan through osmosis that way, just having that bleed through her bedroom walls into my bedroom. So um, there might have been a little bit of historical influence through there, but uh, 96 was really my starting point. And I would say that I was a casual fan for the first couple of years, but once Navy Blues came out in 98, that was what clinched it for me. The video for Money City Maniacs, of course, was all over much music at that point in time. And I just love the way it looked. I love the contrast and the colors. I love the cinematography of that music video. And you go out and you buy the Navy Blues album at the end of May of that year, and you're just immediately floored by the eclecticism of the different songwriting styles of the band. Of course, this is also the year in which my sensibilities for the band were influenced by what was happening in the Sloan internet communities at that point in time. And a lot of you will remember Sloan Net, which was around pretty much from the early 90s, um, and the college message board forums that had 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 gained popularity during that period. And so I was lurking around Sloanet prior to its closing, and I think around the release of Navy Blues, we also had the official Sloan message board run by Telcontar, I believe. And, you know, you say it's official, but it was on some university server somewhere, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, I think that was actually the first point in time at which I was 
actively posting in that community and you know you just you come across really interesting people there and they steer your exploration of the band and exploration of the murder records universe in the right direction so i owe a lot of my um taste in the band's music and in um that peripheral universe to what was happening on the official sloan message board and later on the yuppie slayer um sloan message board which i know the band has mixed opinions about um but uh that was uh you know a point in time at which we had a lot of fun and i actually ended up becoming co-moderator of that message board so pat's glasses is still around in 2020 still kicking um i know a lot of you will know me from from that handle and from back then i'm i'm 100 certain that patrick pentland read that name and thought to himself you know what's this guy on it's uh it's been it's been a long time since that forum shut down and we've uh you know we've all moved our separate ways but i i'm happy to to claim that I'm still in touch with a lot of the people who I met through that message board. And we used to go to concerts together and uh, had random meetups, especially in Toronto. So there was, you know, it was a lot of fun. And of course I associate the band Sloan and the music with um, that point in time in my life as well. So growing up with the band and with their music and with that community has really influenced me musically and personally. And that's why I'm sitting here, um, in this chair today doing a fan cast uh, 30 years into the band's career with with you Rob so that's uh, that's that's me in a nutshell um, my favorite album is never hear the end of it I am a pretty together apologist you know I'm the guy at concerts who is screaming for in the movies uh, in in a sea of people of the sky screamers so that characterizes me pretty well what about you Rob that's great. I definitely consider myself a second generation Sloan fan as well. It's funny, we kind of came into the band right around the same time, sort of officially. I might have heard them, you know, on a friend's stereo, or I sure, certainly would have seen them on much music perhaps prior to one chord to another. But obviously, for me, um, uh, you know, I, I, like you said, just definitely a second generation Sloan fan. I wish, obviously, if I could go back in time in a time machine, I would have been there from day one. You know, like I, I, I wish I lived in Halifax at the time. I wish I had those early Carnatic Road albums and Convulsions. And I wish I had the Oreo Reverse VHS and <laughs> <clears throat> all of that stuff. Um, which, and these, by the way, listeners, are things that we're going to get into in depth in future episodes. So stay tuned. Um, but yeah. Uh, 1996, uh, you did a tip of the hat to your buddy Angus, tip of the hat to my friend, Chris Boyne, who was a high school friend of mine. Uh, we were later in a band together and, um, he invited me to see the band. And at the time, you know, I was into music and stuff, but nothing had really struck me and really taken hold. I think more than anything, like at Christmas time, I remember my dad saying like, Hey buddy, I'll get you a record. What do you want? And I was like, nightmare before Christmas soundtrack because i didn't you know i was just really into movies and stuff and, and, right. and music was cool, cool. I, like i liked acdc and you know all the mid 90s like, like soundgarden and bands like that but it, i i don't think I'd, i i would maybe listen to like a soundgarden single on the album and then maybe just kind of you know i don't know that i've ever really listened to all of bad motor finger before right. i don't think i've ever heard the whole thing um you know or a down on the upside or whatever that album's called super unknown i've never listened to any of those albums all the way through you know um 
it was just about singles and stuff and blah, blah, blah. So my buddy invites me to the show because of much music. I assumed Sloan was the band Pluto. I think I had somehow confused Patrick's haircut with the singer from Pluto. So I was under the impression the whole time that I was seeing Pluto. Uh, not that I cared. I was happy to just go hang out with my friends and then Sloan come up. And I, and I recall the show was local rabbits, uh, elevator to hell Sloan. This was September 96 at fed hall in Waterloo, uh, one court to another tour. And, uh, you know, those two first bands, cool. You know, I, I, I would go on to really love the local rabbits later, but, um, Sloan came out and it was just like, an, it hit me like a ton of bricks. They were incredible, unbelievable live. And I think the band would today argue maybe that they're better live today than they were then certainly, but, uh, they were certainly nothing to, you know, to snub your nose at, they were incredible, incredible live, uh, particularly as a, as a burgeoning drummer, my dad had bought me a drum kit. It was in my mom's basement and, you know, watching Andrew, who's basically bent in half at the waist, you know, leaning into the drums and just fucking powering through each song. Uh, it was inspiring on every level. The music was amazing. I remember, uh, you know, vivid things about the show. I remember Chris introing anyone who's anyone and remembering like, Oh, remember the song. Anyone who's anyone for later. Cause that song's incredible. Like making little mental notes like that in my head after the show, I asked, I went and bought, um, the stood up same old flame seven inch. Cause I think it wow. was maybe the cheapest thing on their merch table. I didn't have a lot of money. So I bought that. I had to have something from the show. So I got that and I saw Jay and I said to my buddy, Chris, who's that guy? Like, what's his name in the, you know, then Ben. And he goes, that's Jay Ferguson. I was like, okay. And I went over totally like I'd been a fan for like five years. And I was just like, Hey Jay, you know, like <laughs> great, great show, man. You know, oh, I finally got the stood up same old flame seven. inch. like my buddy had told me, Oh, this is kind of hard to get, like maybe get this one. And, uh, he signed my seven inch, which I still have. And obviously, and yeah, I woke up the next day. I put the seven inch on my dad's stereo, turned on the TV and the everything you've done wrong video was on. And it was like super fandom achieved, like completed. Like I've, I've seen what I've needed to see. I've heard what I need to hear. This is going to be my favorite band forever. Let's go. And uh, yeah, from there, I I haven't got off the Sloan train. It's been 100% Sloan. In, no other band has even come remotely close in terms of just the quality of albums. I mean, we'll get into this into the show, but I don't want to go on and on as I am already. But yep, I was a big guy on the Sloan message board. My handle was Chico, which is obviously a reference to Chico T. Sanchez from the one chord to another liners. Uh, and I made a ton of friends at the time in Sloan chat in the late 90s, people who I'm still friends with today and uh, people who perhaps we'll even have on the show at some point um but that's a bit of background on me yeah i've been a fan since 96 so we're we're both about 25 years into this we're thing 25 years uh, <laughs> the band is almost 30 years old and we thought it was time that um we obviously want to pay respect to you know podcasts that are out there which you should check out like the sloan selection and the murder records podcast which is now available as well um this is going to be completely different this is from a fan perspective guys who've been into this band for decades who are hardcore we love everything about these guys we're going to dissect away and uh yeah we've i know ken we've talked about a lot about potential episodes coming out where we uh you know focus on specific albums and whatnot uh maybe we'll get to talk to some of the people who've been a part of the career of the band over the years and potentially maybe even some of the band uh themselves hi guys um but yeah ken we have been talking in the past few days about a very specific time period uh did you want to go ahead and introduce that time period for everybody and maybe we can get into it a bit so if you think about the beatles production in 1965 and i'm going to continue to always go back to the beatles just because it's a point of reference that I have myself for my own personal history, but I also feel as though the parallels, even if the band doesn't want to admit it, are there. Um, 
if you look back at the Beatles 1965, that's really the conveyor belt. That's the production facility um, that they were touring hardcore and still putting out two or three albums in that year, what would become two or three albums. And it was a threshold in their career, both creatively as well as personally. And, you know, we were discussing this beforehand, the whole phenomenon around maybe 18 months between the beginning of 1998 or what, ultimately could be even be pulled back to the end of 1997 through to the fall of 1999 um that is a phase in sloan's career that's very unique in the sense that they were achieving um commercial attention that they hadn't achieved beforehand or at least not in that magnitude uh and their creative output having arrived in toronto with the exception of patrick uh, and really having all moved into a, a, a further stage of, of musical maturity um, was was also quite impressive. So this this whole idea about 98, 99, Navy Blues, uh, Four Nights at the Palais Royale, and Between the Bridges would be the topic that we want to focus on today. And so I guess, you know, looking back, and I, I've been digging into some of the materials that I have at, at my disposal, um, but it's really helpful to kind of think back to where you were at in 98 and where, you know, what the mentality was in 98 and what you knew about Sloan in 98. So, Rob, what was the state of mind that Sloan was in at the end of 97, beginning of 98? End of 97, as I recall, <clears throat> the first thing that comes to mind is obviously Much East. And seeing an episode of Much East, this would have definitely been late 97. I'm not sure if it didn't, if it ended up uh, airing in late 97, early 98, but the guys were at the East Coast Music Awards for One Chord, and they played a, what looks to be from the footage, like a party, and there's footage of them playing Iggy and Angus before it came out. I recall seeing that and just being like, what the hell is this song? Like, holy shit. Um, so that was really cool. And, and Chris uh, did an interview, I believe, uh, with um, Mike Campbell. Um, so they're obviously coming off the maybe not so surprising success of one chord to another, because I mean, the band is essentially putting out one chord in 96 as a sort of, as the guys have mentioned over the years, a posthumous release. It's a present, so that they can have, a present to their fans. Yeah. They want to have something on the label. They want to have something for murder records um, that will hopefully bring in a bit of money and sort of help them with the label and so on. And at the time, you know, it's important to note, you know, as I was saying earlier, when I got that stood up, same old flame, seven inch i don't recall if it was in there but i definitely was quick to buy one chord to another uh and opening any murder records product you would get that murder records catalog right. that had you know the lists of all the other bands that they were putting out stuff from zampano and local rabbits and inbreds and thrush hermit and you name it and i mean god what a you know incredible i actually that's another funny thought i, I remember seeing the zampano uh only reason under the sun seven inch at the sloan show as well i guess they had been they were kind of just selling some of the murder record right. stuff as well my buddy my buddy chris bought that um uh, so yeah really cool so coming so at the end of 96 or rather end of 97 they're coming off the you know surprise i guess you can say success of one court to another and you know uh, they've toured and the album i don't know if it had gone gold <laughs> we're not howie and bard here we don't know if they'd gone gold yet but anyway <laughs> Uh, so it's the end of 97 and they, they're playing the East Coast Music Awards and they're obviously clearly working on songs for Navy Blues already. They have stuff that they're uh, rehearsing and playing live. Um, and going into 98, you know, they've got, and this is another thing that we've talked about, they've got potentially enough material by the time they get to Navy Blues that they could potentially be working on a double album here. They're hitting the studio and um, we can go 
in depth into those songs if you'd like at some point soon. But I mean, um, I'll let you kind of get into the topic that you were referring to earlier with me about what might have happened if. But um, yeah, I think the band is riding high. They're back. You know, they had technically, quote unquote, broken up in 1995, although they had played probably as much as any active band would have that year. I think they were really only broken up in, you know, in name only. Um, I've had a sort of side theory that breaking up sort of helped them get out of their DGC contract. I don't know. I don't, it's nothing that they've ever publicly, you know, acknowledged or whatever, but maybe it's just like a back of my brain conspiracy. Cons- conspiracy anyway. theorists are really, they're licking, <laughs> they're licking their chops right now. We'll, we'll do a whole Sloan conspiracy theory episode. <laughs> part, part one is coming up next, but anyway. Um, so yeah, in 90, 90, end of 97, they're on They're riding a huge crest of success from one chord. They're going to be going into Navy blues. And as Chris says, um, there was another, um, much music special on uh, Navy Blues when it came out. And Chris sort of made the distinction that they were going to be turning from the pop rock band that they'd been into the rock pop band that they're going to be. And I think he was maybe saying that with, you know, tongue in cheek. Um, but, it, you know, that's sort of where they go. They, they, they take the... The, the reins that one chord to another sort of established with hits like, you know, good and everyone and everything you've done wrong and lines you and men that are all certainly a little more gentle on the ears and not that Navy blues isn't, but I mean, you're coming right out of the gate with money city maniacs. And I remember, yeah. you know, for whatever reason, whatever it was, uh, it's actually a funny story. You mentioned uh, Beatles anthology earlier. I was definitely an anthology guy at the time. It's, it's important to maybe make that distinction that the anthology had come out the year previous. So that had come out in 95. Um, you know, it was, was already on tv and it was available you know in stores yeah. and stuff and i remember watching it one day and I, I i hit pause or i hit stop and much music started playing the intermittent interactive commercial which included a, a, a snippet of the money city maniacs video which i don't think had been out yet uh, or at least i hadn't seen it and i taped over 30 seconds of my beals anthology so that i could capture that sloan commercial uh so some, <laughs> if some, i were to ever will say that's just fate <laughs> It is. I was. I was. I was erasing the Beatles with Sloan. Yeah, in every way, in my mind, in my heart, in my soul. Uh, you know, and I was, and everybody, and you know, everybody likes the Beatles. Whenever, and I loved the Beatles. My parents loved them and stuff, and uh, you know, whatever. But I, I was perfectly happy to sacrifice that VHS to get that Sloan commercial. Right. Uh, and I and I watched that commercial like twenty five times that day. I was just like, God, what is this song? It sounds amazing. Obviously, I was aware of like Livewire and ACDC, so I sort of kind of caught that that was happening, that sort of musical, you know, twinship, if you will. But God, they, they, they looked awesome. They sound rocking. Yeah. 1998 is coming up and these guys are going to hit everybody with a gigantic single, which is still to this day, like a huge song that you still hear on the radio. It was on the strong, the Strombolopolis show. It was in a uh, future shop commercial for a while there. That that's, a, that's an interesting aspect to kind of dote on. The whole aesthetic of the band had changed since '96. One chord to another was, um, as you've mentioned, it was a gift to the fans. Uh, it was a very introspective album in many ways. There were a lot of very personal songs on there, a lot of songs about breaking up, a lot of songs about moving from one phase and going to going to the next. The band itself, so just looking at their personal situation, Andrew Scott had moved to Toronto in 93 um, and was essentially the odd man out um, when it came to creative collaboration. 
So for one core to another, three of them are in Halifax. Andrew's in Toronto with his with his then girlfriend. Um, I think Chris and Jay had moved both to Toronto then in in ninety seven over the course of ninety seven, and were starting to become more comfortable with themselves um, creatively, but also with the situation in the band. Right? I mean, Chris had done some stuff with Super Friends, and Andrew had done some stuff with the Sadies and with the Maker's Mark, and that wasn't really coming to the same type of fruition that Sloan had come to. So, in in ninety seven. And going into 98, Patrick was the odd man out in Halifax, um, where his friends were. And, you know, I'm I'm sure that he was reluctant to move. And it's really flipping the table again. So what you're seeing in the whole aesthetic of the band, from my perspective, is um, the breakup. We have the breakup behind us. We need to offer something a lot more convincing to our fans this time. But we're also at a point where we can really afford to invest our time and effort into a real collaborative um into a real collaborative product for for navy blues and for me the whole aesthetic of the band in 98 was being driven forward by andrew scott um you know what 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 are you doing if you're jay ferguson or if you're chris murphy or if you're patrick pentland and andrew scott comes into chemical sound with the demo for sinking ships what are you thinking? And you're, you know, Patrick Pentland, and you've got Girl in Case, um, which I still maintain should have should have stayed the name of that song because it always reminds me of just having like a little a little person <laughs> in a suitcase. Um, you know what? What are you thinking if one of your if you're one of the other three band members and the dude who just managed to kind of pick up the you know, the keyboard in the ma- in a matter of a couple of weeks after he'd already picked up the drums from Chris and got better than him in, in a matter of a couple of weeks, you know, a few years earlier. What are you doing if if you're being played the demos for Sinking Ships? And so this is like the aesthetic, this is the aesthetic diversity that we're seeing in Sloan in 97, 98. And you're starting to get a little bit of that competition between between the guys in the band, you know, Smeared was really driven by Chris. There was a lot of leftover stuff from the bands that he'd been in with Jay. You know, I, th- I think that Twice Removed was a, a lot more of a balanced effort. But even then, you can see that Jay wasn't really a mature songwriter at that point in time. And I would argue as well that Andrew was not a mature songwriter. I mean, you know, move, moving moving through one chord to another. Um, but then you get to 97, 98, end of 97. Um, walking into chemical sound, Andrews just burst out, you know, like I remember listening to Navy blues for the first time and hearing the first bars of sinking ships and lyrically just being floored as a 14 year old, mind you. Um, but a 14 year old who was listening to a lot of hip hop, who was listening to the Beatles, who was listening to, you know, like even Gord Downey and like dudes who are pretty comfortable with themselves lyrically and listening to, you know, you take control of having what you want around you, and every blink of your eye can make an old man feel younger than every single day in his life before he carried round this weight like it was yours to show the world. Like, what the fuck is this? And then he comes in with, you know, with with, with the full band, and which then goes to this weird kind of B part in the middle with there's nobody around for miles. It's just totally out there, right? It is a four minute and whatever how many seconds bong hit of absolute brilliance and so you're sitting there like i think jay's also touched upon this as well 
he kind of realized at that point in time, the other three guys, they're really given her, right? I mean, the other three guys in the band, they're coming out, you know, Chris has got, suppose they close the door, right? Which is, I would argue, also heavily influenced by Andrew. And I would also assume that Andrew's um, got the guitar lead on that one. And we'll have to have that confirmed. Uh, Patrick, look at Patrick's tracks. Iggy and Angus, Money City Maniacs, um, Stand By Me, Yeah, and uh, Cotton Pickin' Moment, which you know, gracefully was renamed to uh, I'm Not Through With You Yet. Those are four of Patrick's best tracks, period. You know, so, and this isn't to single out Jay in, in any way, but I can understand that, you know, Jay is also, you know, he might need a little bit longer to write songs. He's also written about this being the case. Coming into the studio and being totally intimidated by what's happening. So this is the aesthetic that's happening, right? And you can see they're they're moving this from a... um from a from a fun 90s friends band to a business that's that's what i feel that's what i feel when i when i look at the year 98 is moving from that type of an amateur to a real pro situation well said man like i I was just thinking as you were saying that and i'm sure you know in in the early 90s and through the success of smeared and uh you know through the success of getting signed to dgc at all coming from a tiny town in you know canada way up north there you know some california label that's got nirvana and all these amazing bands is just plucking them out of obscurity you know in a sense and putting them on the world stage you know and that's another conversation that needs to be had a topic that we're definitely going to cover at some point but you know for them to go from completely nobody i'm sure at the time they were thinking about the future and what would, you know, eventually how, how the band would sort of sort themselves out. You know, I think they, they obviously took the turn with twice removed where they wanted to be maybe more comfortable with the kind of music they were making and wanting to make something maybe a little more timeless that you could hear in 20, 30 years. And it would just sort of feel, you know, not necessarily of the time. And they were definitely doing that. So I, I, you know, I think through twice removed and probably through 95, you know, with the, with the quote unquote breakup of the, of the band, there probably wasn't so much thought about what the band was going to be doing in the future. Obviously they, they assumed it would be done. And like you said, you know, Chris is in super friends, Jay's working the label. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Uh, Andrew's in Toronto. Like you said, Sadie's, I remember actually seeing a band open for thrush hermit and the, um, and who else was it? I think flashing lights, maybe, uh, in Toronto and a band called the Brown Belts was uh, opening and I'm standing in line for the show and right in front of me is Andrew. He's like in, I don't know if he was, I don't know why he was in line. Maybe he was just talking to somebody in line or maybe he legit couldn't get into the building or something. But I remember, I remember he was in front of me for, and then, and then he ended up playing drums in this band called the Brown Belts that I've never heard another word of, you know, so if somebody's out there and knows what the hell that was, maybe it's some band that was like a mixture of different people and they eventually went on to do something else. But the only guy who i recognized was andrew and it was so cool as a sloan fan at the same time to see him there but i digress um i really feel like 96 catches them by surprise the success you know they're probably touring at the time and going like man we can really make a go at this again we've got a sort of second chance a second lease on life for the band 98 comes and i think you nailed it you know they know at this point their strengths you know they they're gonna they've got a lot of music in the you know in the can here not necessarily recorded yet but i mean they've got you know, songs on paper that are ready to go. And 
it's it's a concerted effort like you say and we can even talk about this at some point too like we've chatted privately about you know the commercialization of navy blues just the, how everything sort of had a look to it you know the the album looked like the video looked like the intimate and interactive that went out across the nation there was a consistency there um but yeah they're they're coming in and they're definitely at this point in 98 aware of the investment that they're making in their future. They've made the incredible one chord to another, and they're about to make another incredibly timeless album um, that for me too in Navy Blues has changed over time, as you said. Like, I mean, I, I would I would admit that early on in my fandom, Andrew was the sort of uh, outlier for me. He was the one where I liked the songs, yeah. but, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed listening to the, the sort of the more popular stuff maybe more often, less so, you know, the introspective, you know, lyrics. Uh, he's, he's laying it on really thick. So, um and by navy blues like you said i mean with sinking ships and seems so heavy on the horizon it's definitely one of his home runs i mean uh, I, I would argue all the albums are amazing but he's he's in such top form here uh and you mentioned jay uh i recall in that there's, there's a great much music special on navy blues where they sort of i think they pretend that they're in the studio at the time and jay's talking about you know he maybe only had two or three songs. So he's batting, you know, a hundred that the songs that he had written both right. made it on the album. And, and, and you can tell, and you can see from the demos at the time, there's the Glenn Campbell demo that eventually becomes waiting for slow songs, That's right. which is sort of his maybe more upbeat contribution um, had, you know, we get into the topic, which I think is the next thing we're going to talk about is what would have happened if, um, but yeah, he, he comes in there and it's great because you have so much other, I feel like Jay is the one in the room on the album who sort of offers that tone of song. He's got, come on, come on. And I want to thank you, which I, I think are kind of cousin songs to each other in terms of feel. Um, obviously they both end up going somewhere else musically towards the end of the song. Um, but with other songs in the mix, like says what she means and Iggy and Angus and keep on thinking, you know, money city made we can go through the album. It's, it's a lot of bangers, um, a lot going on musically. And, and Jay's kind of there, you know, with Patrick too, with stand by me. Yeah, and I'm not through with you yet. They offer the sort of other side of Sloan and maybe a little bit of a step back. You know, this, this album's not going to all just be one tone. And just a reminder that this band is right. all over the place and and that's what makes them great and ultimately makes them timeless i think had this album been just a greatest hit sounding rehash of whatever made you know one chord you know popular just do good in everyone 12 times you know we wouldn't be necessarily talking yeah. about them today so um yeah so there's jay with his contributions um and it's weird you think about the the differences in tone across one chord and navy blues especially um like you said with andrew's lyrics and with the musicality of the songs um watching their intimate and interactive in 1998 all of these different elements and all of these different tones you're watching them and especially when you see them live it just feels like them you know they've got these different extremes yeah. but at all times especially when you see them live it never feels out of place it always feels like the same band playing no i think that the the cohesion in terms of quality that you see on Navy Blues is a result of them going into the studio with basically 30 songs that they could have put on that album or 30 pieces of songs that they could have put on that album. And I, I was struck this week watching, re-watching the Intimate and Interactive from 98 that Rick Campanelli went out into the audience and was doing the interactive part. And first of all, I was struck at how many teenage girls were in the audience and i've forgotten that that you know sloan at that point in time 
you know, they were heartthrobs in, in, in many ways in, in a, in a very Canadian way, I guess. But, um, Rick, Rick's out in the crowd and he's, he's asking this one girl who couldn't have been older than 13, uh, to, to give her question to the band. And I'm assuming that she's going to ask something stupid, like, where do you guys get your influences for new music from or whatever? And she asks, she says, so rumor had it this year that you guys might be dropping a double album, but you're, you've only come out with a single album. So I feel a bit duped. When's the next album going to be released? And that got me thinking, you know, this is, this is what we were hearing, you know, that it was going to be a double album that was leaked on the Sloan message boards online. And we've read it since what would have happened if that were a double album? What would have, what would have become of Navy blues and what would have become of Sloan if that, single album with 13 bangers was a 30 track album with 13 bangers and you know 17 medium range bangers ultimately would there have been a never hear the end of it in 2006 my gut feeling is no my gut feeling is uh, 2006's never hear the end of it was a response to what had happened the last four or five albums culminating in action-packed not being a commercial success in the states that the way they want it to be um them not really being creatively happy with the direction that rothrock had, had taken them in for the album and then going back to toronto regrouping and saying you know we've always wanted to do a double album or you know a, a, a large-scale production like this on our own terms so let's do it and i think that this was also a key turning point in the band's career because it's the acknowledgement that we have full creative control not just over the songs that we write but over the final product that reaches fans and we don't need commercial radio in the states especially in 2006 to decide what our fans want so that you know that for me was a watershed in the band's career and it remains my favorite album never hear the end of it followed very closely by navy blues so that you know it's an interesting thought to ponder on if if navy blues had been a double album and if we have girl in case on the album and if we have the early version of your daddy will do on the album and if we have a couple of you know pseudo between the bridges takes that weren't quite ready yet on the album would we be sitting here in 2020 and talking about navy blues it's it's an amazing point you know i mean um and this is something that we've again talked about prior to recording but um you know the band obviously we spoke about if um obviously money city maniacs she says what she means these giant singles i really i still really think they would have had huge success they obviously would have still done the intimate interactive a lot of the things that have happened that happened with navy blues i think would have happened the same now would a price would a double album price point have turned some people off i don't know the casual listener the casual fan who likes money city or she says what she means and just goes oh 20 bucks for a cd forget it you know like but then again i mean the previous year you had melancholy melancholy and the infinite sadness from smashing pumpkins which was That's right. i think probably the best selling or one of them of the year and it was a double so um and, and again a double that i've never listened to all the way through <laughs> you know like I, I, that great album great album and stuff but and i loved smashing pumpkins but like i didn't have the time or interest to sit around and listen to that whole thing um and when and, and but listen there's only there's only so much billy corgan that you can take and this is the beauty of sloan again if you're sick and tired of another chris <laughs> anthem about becoming irrelevant then you just have to wait until the next song 
and Patrick's going to bring you right back up on that. It's so funny that you mentioned that because the demo for uh, I've I've Enabled Myself, which would eventually become uh, Fading Into Obscurity, which is, again, one of my favorite Chris songs, um, is present there in 97, 98. He's got that kind of in his back pocket. So, I mean, he's already, you know, the the sort of Chris hammering on himself, which everybody sort of assumes comes later, is is very much present here. You know, he maybe doesn't let it out of the bag yet. He's 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 got nothing but confidence with the songs on this album for sure. Um, but <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so many songs are in the works here. You know, stuff that would eventually become "So Beyond Me" and uh, "Just One Shot" by Patrick, which would eventually be formed into "Day Will Be Mine" uh, from just a couple of years ago on Twelve. Uh, work cut out, which I think came out as a. Uh, chart magazine exclusive single that's right cd cd yeah when i heard that i was just like why isn't this one on the album it's fantastic and and that's just a beautiful you know that's that's just a perfect silly heart-wrenching almost chris track yeah there that could have made i I feel as though it would have made one uh one chord to another aesthetically but just talking about the quality of tracks that were coming out in 98 from this band, you know, you're going to put, what are you going to replace on Navy blues with? That's the thing. It it only makes sense, you know, including some of these songs like out to lunch too, which is another incredible Patrick song. Um, You know, Chris already had, you know, what would become summer's my season, which in terms of B sides from between the bridges is just fantastic. Um, So it's, it's a good point. And they all, they obviously were going to represent, everybody on this album i mean more than ever now i would suggest things i guess with with the possible exception of jay who only has the two songs things are getting more evened out you know like andrew's definitely in the mix a bit more with one extra song um you know jay only had two on one chord as well so you know, like, like he would probably argue he's batting a hundred. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's only got these couple songs and they're making the album and they're fantastic. So, um, but yeah, like you say, what do you replace on this album? And, and I would argue you can't, you know? So, uh, yeah, very interesting argument to be made, what would have happened had they had a double album? And I don't know, you know, I, it's interesting. I think they would have still had that initial success of the singles. Um, and I think your follow-up question would be like, it was, would never hear the end of it have even happened had they had a double album um, in 98 followed by, you know, maybe a lesser success because of it. Um, You know, I I think that, you know, Chris is pushing for four nights at the Palais Royale being a big triple album, at least on vinyl anyway, and a double album on CD. Um, You know, I think after the fact, you know, it's probably why they haven't done another, you know, live album, you know, or something like that, uh, or something, yeah. especially yeah. after years of them being such, and not, I don't want to say more competent. They've definitely changed, but the, you know, their songs are so, so vast now. And every show is just like a different sort of review of like, you know, what Sloan are you going to get tonight? Is it going to be depending on the event, like a greatest hit Sloan, or are they going to, I mean, within the past couple of years, they've really changed into, um, over the past decade, at least like they've opened up for themselves really, you know, like, They've got so much material yeah. and the fans are so when you have 300 songs in your catalog you're not inviting anybody you're not paying anybody to yeah. open for Speaking you. Speaking of, I remember being at an event, I think it was a Pony Deluxe show in like 2009 or something and I heard Chris was going to be sitting in for Rebecca on drums, so of course I'm like I'm there. And after the show right some other people showed up. I remember seeing Joel Plaskett there and I kind of, and Pete Elkis was there and I somehow found myself 
very out of place in a circle with Chris, Joel Plaskett and Pete Elkis and me. Like I'm like, why would I be there? Like it should be like Matt Murphy or something. Right. Anyway. So I find myself in this like little circle standing, chatting with them. And then they all kind of go somewhere and later Chris said something or the, the, the topic kind of came up because Joel had his three album and Hey man, love Joel, love thrush hermit or whatever. Um, mm. but I don't know that I've ever listened to three all the way through, you know, <laughs> like great songs and all that. And I'm sure there are Joel Plaskett fans out there just grinding their teeth and cracking their knuckles, ready to strangle me or whatever. But I, I remember, you know, thinking, or, or maybe even Chris even commenting and maybe he doesn't want me to say this, but he was just like, yeah, man, like, you know, Joel's got so many songs under his belt. Now he's got, you know, this three album, like his, his, his released Canon is just overshotting us by so much, you know? And I, I, I don't right. know if I said yeah. it or had the, you know, the confidence to say it at the time, but I wanted to say like, Hey man, like he's got a lot of tunes, but quantity doesn't always mean quality. And that's what you can count on from this band. You know I mean? God, you know, not to take a step back here, but just to sort of, you know, bask in the glory of this band, all original members for almost 30 years as of this year, um, you know, a, a consistent every couple of years, fantastic fucking album. They put out their own bootlegs, you know, all four singer songwriters quality every time, you know, and I mean the public sort of perception and, you know, the casual fan, you know, the tragically hip fan, as I like to call them awareness of them kind of, ebbs and flows um but you know for the fans who have been with them for as long as we have and certainly from the beginning i mean they've always been there they've always been consistent and uh yeah so to 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 assume that maybe never hear the end of it wouldn't have happened had navy blues been a double album in the same way that they haven't had another live album after the four nights came out obviously four nights came out and it's awesome and i know a lot of friends and fans who have that album and love that album it's amazing um but yeah not something that they've that they've repeated not a not an action that they've repeated so no and i think that you know to close this thought i think that it's 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 worth keeping in mind that if there are thresholds to the generations of sloan fans that the release of navy blues was definitely a threshold i feel as though the first generation sloan fans the college radio smeared and twice removed fans and you know you could even claim that there's a half generation at the beginning with smeared that kind of fell off once twice removed was released so really the grunge heads but let's call them the the first generation sloan fans for lack of a better term a lot of them are falling off the boat in 98 because they're not digging the for what they you know for that from their perspective over the top commercialism and the over the top um citation nature of this album and i've actually i've got a review here from a guy called wade tomlin so if you're listening which you're probably not um we're going to dig into this looking at navy blues and it's a period piece and it's a one-star review of the cd entitled sloan's dirty little secret navy nothing but blue and i feel as though it's a good encapsulation of how a lot of the fans who had been with them up until that point in time felt about this new wave in their in their creative endeavors but i'll quote here everybody in the canadian music press screams praises from the rooftops for these guys but the canadian public haven't jumped on the sloan bandwagon in any significant way the reason they are the most uninspired band in canada today instead of trusting their own instincts to create an original sound Sloan hide in the sounds of 80s-style pop rock bands that at most had one hit. Money City Maniacs is a juvenile, basic rock song that belongs to a garage band, not a signed artist. Also, 
The band never really cuts loose with any energy or flair. Everything is so timid on Navy Blues, you'd wish they'd taken upper. On the on the whole, a very uninspired rock band. So, Wade, if you're listening, um, tip of the hat to you there. Uh, it you know you you kind of encapsulate, I think, the the the, the distrust of a lot of those first generation Sloan fans. And then we see that again once Never Hear the Never Hear the End of It is released in 2006. And I think that if you've been with the band through Navy Blues and through Never Hear the End of It, then you're going to be with the band until until the end. Agree. Yeah. I think Wade might have given Treble Chargers maybe it's me five stars. Uh not sure. But anyway, um <clears throat> maybe it sounds like that kind of guy. And, and whatever. I mean, everybody's got everybody's a critic and everybody's got their opinion. But it is interesting to read that, you know, from the time. And you're right, he does kind of represent perhaps that, you know, segment of the first wave of the of the Sloan fandom. Um but yeah, I mean, Navy Blues in retrospect, I mean, one of the classic albums, I mean, you know, maybe perhaps we'll talk to Aaron Brophy sometime on this show and chat about sort of like, you know, how many Sloan albums were in that chart top 100 of all time. Like, God, it's definitely up there. And I mean, despite the critical praise for it, you know, as as fans and stuff, I mean, it's it's an album that was a watershed moment where they went from, oh, hey, we're, we're back. Like, p- people are into us. Great. Awesome. To, okay, full steam ahead. We're going to you know, everybody's just forward facing and uh, we're going to do everything we can to just market this thing, you know, the way that it needs to be marketed for it to be as big as possible. And uh, you know, that has rippled through time until now, you know? Uh, Okay. Let's just change uh, gears here for a second. Let's talk about the timeline because when we're talking about, you know, 1998, 1999, so much happens in about a year and four months there. We've got the release of, uh, of Navy blues, which is, May 6th, or sorry, May 26th, rather, 1998, now, which is, as I recall, the same night as the Intimate and Interactive at Much Music. As I, as I recall, they happened on the same That's day, right. right? Was, uh, which is, I mean, just yeah. what, you know, you can't ask for, you know, better promo than a nationwide show. There was a lead up to this as well, because they'd released Money City Maniacs beforehand, so that Canada was getting a taste, and, and the United States, for those close to the yeah. border, I guess. <laughs> They were getting they were getting a taste of the album and getting a taste of um of of, of that video as well, um, and that and I gotta say I believe uh, not to cut you off I'm sorry but that you know Money City Maniacs video is like so just visually you know I, I taped over yeah. a part of my Beatles anthology you know to get to get it on tape so I could watch it and I remember in the in the I was only at this point a fan for a couple of years so I'd only ever known. I hadn't seen any of the early, like, you know, early nineties interviews and stuff. So I'd only ever known the sort of stoic Andrew Scott of, you know, of the good in right. everyone and everything you've done wrong and lines, of you men videos. And, you know, you didn't really see him doing interviews, you know, on TV. He, and, and especially when they played, he just looked very serious. I mean, obviously he was there to rock and he was amazing. Like, he was the part of the show right. that just really drew me in at first. Um, and he, he just seemed really, you know, stoic and sort of just, you know, very, you know, I don't know, battened down, if you will, and um, very serious. And I remember seeing that interview with Chris at the ECMAs that year, and somebody said, you know, this is Andrew's coming out party or whatever. Like, uh, you know, he was talking about somebody coming and saying like, oh, Andrew just came and came in, you know, came up right up to me and talked to me or something like that. Where I, I, I mean, I, you know, not, I wasn't there, but you get to that money yeah. Cindy maniacs video that first symbol hit when it comes in i remember thinking like whoa look yeah. at him he looked so animated he looked so alive like he had like a look on his face that i hadn't yeah. seen before and i was just like man yeah. so that video just blew me out of the water 
Which is interesting because Andrew is the one who really, um, I think, struggled the most with the the music video shoots. The you know the 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 stupidly long hours that you would spend just waiting for the next scene to be built. And I th- I feel as though he was just the one kind of wanting to go in there, fucking tear apart his drum kit and get out. You know, but he's definitely the one that comes across as being the centerpiece of that opening scene. Which is, of course, all, you know, this is all part and parcel of um, Chris Murphy's wonderful direction of the whole thing. And, you know, I think that that we owe, we do owe a lot of our, our fandom and a lot of, you know, the, 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 the mid-phase, you know, Sloan, uh, Beatlesque type, Beatlemania um, phenomenon to, 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 to Chris's artistic drive throughout the Navy Blues Absolutely. process, thank, right? Thank God so for those from, uh, from, art annuals. <laughs> You know, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna do him some service here, and I'm sure I'm sure his head's just gonna get a little bit bigger if he if he hears this. But that whole concept of you know pulling that wonderful poster art from that art you know coffee table book, finding that attractive and appealing for uh, for an album artwork concept, and then pulling that through not just the album artwork, but also through the entire marketing campaign pre, during, and post-launch of Navy Blues, pulling that through the music video. This was something that was available, you know, it was it was pulled through their merch at that point in time as well. So all the, you know, the typography, the vertical red lines, that 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 kind of flair that they have, um, that the style in which their faces are photographed, that whole thing was conceived and i i would argue the parts of that are even pulled into the she says what she means music video even that wasn't even though that wasn't really the basis of that video aesthetically i know that they were working off of sort of an old cult film but it's a you know it's a dark video with this guy in a red suit and you know that that whole year 1998 and even pulling the four up on stage for the tour and just the way that that kind of contrasts with those red lines you know that 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 whole idea um, from an artwork standpoint, was just genius. So you know, Chris, you shouldn't cut yourself short. Um, that was a real success, and I am very impressed to this day with your directing. <laughs> He's skills. definitely not listening. Um, you got to also you got to give it to him on the Navy Blues cover. He's the one with the big red line through his head, right? So That's right. Uh, you know, if, if there is sort of a if there is some cohesion between that album cover and the in the she says she means video, you know, he's the man in red, uh, just like in in, in the That's movie, right. but um, that they're kind of pulling from. Which the name is escaping me right now. Oh, what's that? The Paul Jones movie uh, starts with a C. Uh, maybe we can maybe we can we'll, edit this part. We'll check, we'll check the A sides when we'll check the A sides yeah, when I've extended got, commentary. I've got the final soundtrack, and I can't even remember the name of the movie. My son's here on my lap, by the way. But anyway, so if if hey, you're Jeffrey. ever gonna have a you know one of the members died theory, which we can get into that too. Hey, there's tons of Sloan conspiracy theory. You know, Chris, Chris died there in is. 1998, and he was replaced with a uh, clone. Uh, you know, on the cover of Navy Blues, there he is with that big red line through his head. So I mean, you know, the evidence right. mounts. You know. Um, he, that's right you know just play the solo to uh <laughs> just play the solo to long time coming backwards and you'll hear uh chris <laughs> absolutely uh but anyway sorry what, what were we just talking about there i want to go back a few steps so we're at we're at the release of right. navy blues the intimate and interactive um at the end of may 1998 that having been sort of also that pinnacle of Sloan mania amongst the teenies. Yeah, you were talking about the artwork. I do um, want to quickly just mention that the inside the artwork, the, the photos of the band inside Navy Blues might be 
it's, it's a close one. Might be my favorite band photos from an album where each of the guys is sort of like in a solo light. They're all holding guitars. I love yeah. that. I love that inside the album, Andrews were holding his guitar. And uh, can we just also stop and reflect on how amazing Catherine Stockhausen is as a photographer, absolutely. as a yeah, band absolutely. photographer, and, and like this biographical almost um, uh, portrayal of the band throughout the years and taking on many shapes and forms. You know, it's not as though she's really putting her fingerprint on the photography that 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 she puts out there um, for 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 the band for the band's artwork, but it's really morphing um and 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 forming alongside what the band wants to express with that particular album and she's done it in such an intimate way over the course of the decades really um almost as the exclusive band photographer for for sloan and i think that that's something that really comes to great expression as you mentioned in the sleeve artwork for navy blues so tip of the hat to you Catherine stockhausen if you're listening which you're maybe not she's a dream guest for me on this show and now here's this uh after so we get let's yeah get her I'll, let's I'll get reach her out. she's super nice uh if, if anybody hasn't checked uh, checked out pony to look uh they released an album a few years ago on murder records this is what this is would have been like 2008 late late around Four. no no around the parallel play period yeah right but great album and uh, Chris's significant other, Rebecca, is the drummer. Uh, Amy and Temple also in the band. Just awesome people. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. We're digressing so much here. But great artwork on Navy Blues. Uh, I wanted to quickly just talk about the timeline again. Um, we have so much going on in the course of just a, a year and four months. Navy Blues comes out May 26, 1998. Um, then they hit the they hit the festival tour after that, really. I mean, they, 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 there were a couple of dates, I believe, at the beginning after the, after the release of the album, but they were co-headliners of EdgeFest right. at that point in, during, during the right. summer. So moving from, I guess, Edge, EdgeFest would have started end of June, early mm-hmm. July. Um, RIP Edgefest. <laughs> I, I recall Edgefest just being the biggest thing, and I recall being super disappointed that I couldn't get. I wasn't in town for Edgefest when it came. Oh, to I wanted to go. Same but, thing. Yeah, that Toronto show. I wanted to go to that one so, but my brother went. But uh, but so here's here's a fun story. Um, I'd always thought that my first Sloan show was on the Between the Bridges tour um, in January of 2000 at the Ottawa Congress Center. And then I was doing some reflection leading up to to our talk today, and I remembered um, this. She says what she means. Music video was shot on the day, um, or at least that that final segment where they're boarding their propeller plane and flying from Toronto to to, to Ottawa to fly from the Edge Fest to the Ottawa Parliament Hill um, slash Byward Market Show, uh, Major Hill Park, I guess was the was was the venue. And uh, I was thinking to myself like. Okay, July 1st, 1998. I was definitely on Parliament Hill that day as I was every year as a teenager. And you know what? That was my first Sloan show. I'd forgotten this. I can't believe how I'd forgotten this. Probably because the girl who I was chasing after at that point in time as a 14-year-old, you know, wanted to lure me into the bushes to drink a kokanee or something. Um, and so I actually missed about a third of the set. And the set wasn't particularly long. But um, what a historic show to have as your first Sloan show, right? I mean, it, it was the it was televised. Uh, it was Canada Day. It you know it's in Andrews' hometown of Ottawa, and it was also at the tail end of a music video that you love, you know and love, uh, including a very kooky scene that is is reminiscent of sort of a Rolling Stones, the boys boarding the plane and hanging out with all these groupies. Um, 
type thing. So that was, you know, that 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 was an interesting little point of reflection. I have a terrible memory, and this is going to pop up quite a bit during this during this podcast. But it's good to know that I caught some slow national on the Navy Blues tour, and that I didn't have to wait until the Between the Bridges tour, which was, of course decidedly not as as cool as the navy blues tour for 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 these reasons so we're talking about about a year and a half earlier than you had originally thought because uh because the 98 uh parliament byward market show yeah. is is canada day 98 july july 1st as canada day 98 navy blues was very fresh money city maniacs was all over the radio i remember that being I, I guess they must have released it as a single in april it was prior to the album's release but it was huge by the time july rolled around at least in rock yeah. radio in ottawa um and i remember and that you know recalling this now i recall being really psyched to see money city maniacs live which i did um and you know it was it, it was it was fantastic but that's right I, now now i i believe this kind of puts me out of that whole 25 club because I this I, I would have now seen I I thought my twenty fifth show was last year in Victoria on the Navy Blues tour, but it was actually my twenty sixth show, or it might have been my twenty seventh or twenty fourth or something. I you know I'm I'm really bad at remembering I've these lost sorts count. of things. Um, yeah, and that's you know that's an interesting thing. So you you didn't attend the Edge Fest in Toronto? No, I didn't. And I want to say, as if you were fourteen, I was a little bit older than you, a couple of years. Uh, as a fourteen-year-old, you were way cooler than me. If you were getting dragged around by market by some girl looking for drinks, <laughs> I was definitely probably at home watching WrestleMania ten on VHS <laughs> at fourteen, and uh, you know, like I said earlier, listening to Soundgarden or some, or whatever, um, <clears throat> like just a single, and then turning the CD off and then watching wrestling. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, so I wasn't there. I remember my brother went, and I think that his, he and his friends were there to see like Foo Fighters and Green Day and some of the bigger bands playing that day. I want to say potentially even Tea Party were on that show, uh, that Edge Fest. I can't recall because they definitely also played the Byward Market show, as a, as I recall. But um, right, there yeah, were, yeah, I couldn't see, and, and also uh, Big Rec was on the show at Byward Market, which we'll talk about in a second because I've got a funny uh, anecdote from the live footage of the day. But um, yeah, I wanted to go so bad. You'd mentioned as well that Big 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 Rec were the headliners uh, of a lot of the shows that they've been playing that year because they had those three singles that were huge from In Loving Memory, I think it's called yeah. the album, and uh, which I you know I appreciate and I'm I'm you know um, Thornley is a real guitar aficionado and he's a fanta fantastic guitarist and has a cool whis whiskey like voice uh one of my favorite anecdotes about him though is that a buddy of mine once once mentioned that he's the the male alana miles um which when you think about it kind of makes sense both optically and from a style and they're, and they're both but I, you know, <laughs> and they're I, both quite frail these days um yeah so uh <clears throat> i was at home looking at a newspaper ad i recall looking at the big edge fest poster i was just like god i wish i was there and i knew that the byward market show was on the tv that night so excited to see it i taped it and uh, ladies and gentlemen we're gonna have a youtube channel at some point coming up and if you're listening to this like five five years in the future just look for sloancast on youtube or whatever uh, i'll definitely have a copy of it up there at some point but there's a great interview because p picture this day, July 1st, 98 for Sloan, you know, we got to talk to the guys or maybe we'll talk to somebody in the camp at some point about this day. It would have been quite the day, you know? I mean, if you're in a band, especially a touring band, your day can be hectic. You know, if you're doing radio promo and all kinds of different things, you know, a lot of people just, yeah, it was hot. It was you're hot outside. Too. A lot of people think that a show, I mean, they played two outdoor shows in one day. 
you know, in the middle of July or at the beginning of July rather. But, you know, for a lot of bands, you know, people go to the show, they see the show, they think that it's as easy as sitting backstage, you come out, you play, you go. But I mean, for a lot of bands, even a band at Sloan's level, um, you know, they, there, there's a lot that goes into that day, you know, and especially a day like July 1st, 98, they would be playing, not only playing Edge Fest and just the logistics of that huge show and then packing up, getting on a plane, going to Ottawa. And also, by the way, we're also shooting a video. So we're doing that too, you know, and um, they get there, they get to Ottawa and then they play that show later that night. And it, it appears from the footage, I don't know at the time if Jay was much of a drinker, if he ever was, or is he, if he is now or whatever, but he appears to be a little light on his feet, a little happy. He's like tumbling over himself at the show. Um, it's definitely a very loose show, but it was, it's awesome. And, um, they have an interview segment. They must've interviewed them after touching down before the Byward market show. Cause they, they go to the clip and, Andrew, they're just asking the guys like super weird generic questions. Like, do you have any great Canada day memories or something like that? And, and Andrew has this great thing. And if I haven't watched the tape in like 20 years, but he says something like, you know, Oh, I had, um, and they're asking them about big wreck or something. He's like, Oh, big wreck. You know, uh, you know, they, they, I loved them so much more back in the day when they were just called wreck and they were so much better. They were so much better then. Uh, anyway, <laughs> love it. When Andrew gets on the mic on TV, it is pretty epic. So uh, anyway, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, we could get into jokes about, you know, knowing broken social scene when they were still put together, but, um, that's for another episode <laughs> as well. Anyway. So, yeah, so let's, we digress again. Um, but we, yeah, so the summer, the summer you have the summer festival scene during 98 and that was a year, I guess the mid nineties to late nineties were years in which Sloan really dug into that summer festival scene as a, I'm, I'm sure it was lucrative in one form or another, you know, with all those paying patrons of the festivals, it's not something that they're going to be doing quite a bit during the 2020s. I feel, I feel like um, they, they still get around. Like, they, I mean, there are certainly festivals that happen, you know, in, in obviously at this point, you know, edge fest isn't really a thing the way it was then. And I don't think there really are, you know, the big touring festivals these days are like, you know, some big lame electronic festival or something. Not that I don't like electronic music, ladies and gentlemen, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not the same thing. Edge Fest is kind of gone. But anyway, um, yeah. Right. And so the, the tour, the tour carries on. Um, I'm not sure. So leading up to the infamous, uh, famous four nights, the Palais Royale, which were at the beginning of November, 1998, um, I'm, I'm sure there were some interesting gigs in there. I didn't experience them myself. Was were the four nights themselves sort of at the tail end of the official Navy Blues tour? Did they continue to tour the the album up until um, winter and spring? In yeah, good call. I'm not sure because I mean they're in the new year in early '99. Um, I mean they're recording between the bridges in Toronto at Chemical Sound in may of 99 so but <clears throat> by, by may they're That's already right. recording so april, april may 99 yeah, and yeah. so four nights ladies and gentlemen the, the timeline kind of goes like this we've got navy blues coming up may 98 um less than a year later april 99 you've got four nights which is basically the document yeah. of the album that had just came out within the year um yeah. and as soon as yeah. that album is out i mean and obviously there would have been preparation for that album to come out um as soon as that album's out they're in the studio they're right away back in the studio recording between the bridges and essentially yeah. you know 
I, I thought, I think perhaps this is the case with you for me, Navy blues in between the bridges in a sense, because they came out so close together and you get the sense, especially from the Navy blues material that a lot of the stuff that didn't make it to Navy blues ended up on be- between the bridges. They're sort of like a, you know, rubber soul revolver kind of situation where those songs yeah. are kind of interchangeable. Yeah. They could have been on either album, you know? Yeah. Did, do you feel as though, um, just looking at this really compact timeline, right? So we have, we have over the course of 18 months, three releases, we have Navy blues, we have four nights. And then really shortly thereafter we have between the bridges and, you know, you could argue that between the bridges was pretty much ready to go. They got it recorded within two months. There was a lot of material left over from, um, the time at which Navy blues was recorded. But do you feel as though four nights was brought out at a good point in time? Because, they tried to market it. They had TV commercials for four nights. I recall seeing TV commercials for a live album by Sloan on city TV or whatever. Um, and thinking to myself back then, like, wow, this is really, you know, like Sloan are really getting big. Um, and I feel as though there are enough copies of four nights on CD left over to kind of lead you to believe that it wasn't the success that they had hoped that it would be what do you think this was an optimal point in time to release a double live album uh, i mean they're being bold here obviously and i think it's an important you know even if at the time i mean obviously if you've got a, an album the size of navy blues coming out it's it's you know not out of the realm of possibility that releasing anything at that point would be you know have a certain monicum of success you know and, and i would imagine that four nights did pretty well did it sell the amount of copies that they probably made you know maybe not whatever but you know that's yeah. the music industry it's kind of up and down and in every release is sort of you know you, you don't really know what to expect but i mean looking back at four nights as a yeah. document <clears throat> looking back at it today and I, especially i was just listening to it recently again it's just so great it's such a uh, it's such a snapshot of not only the band and the songs that they were playing at the time but you hear the crowd you hear kind of how the how the show sort of went off i I love hearing the sort of intro and hearing how they sound how how quick and how tight they are um you know it's it's which is which is interesting because they didn't have a rehearsal space at that time so they're getting their tightness through playing gigs right so i guess if you play four nights in a row then by the fourth night you should be grooving right technically or you're going to be total shit um but the fidelity as you mentioned the tightness the the engineering of the album as well so you know just the mic placement and stuff like that it just sounds a lot better than a lot of the live albums that i've heard so i would put this from a from a recording standpoint above live at leeds i think live at leeds captures a lot of the excitement that the who generated at that point in their career and i'm obviously i'm gonna i'm gonna pull some strange parallels here and if i'm gonna throw you know i'm gonna throw sloan in the same group as peter frampton and queen and live at leeds just because you know the album it's uh, the, the the double album itself was very kind of it was an homage to that era of cheesy live albums. You have the audience sing-alongs, right? You have a drum solo. You have Andrew doing a drum solo on, I think it was on Money City Maniacs, in fact. You know, so it was, it, I, think, I think there's definitely a nod to that era of album. But I think sonically, it's just so much better 
right? And you get that vibe that you're actually at a Sloan concert, but the acoustics are even better. Than I was going to say, remember. I mean, yeah, it, obviously it's a nod to Kiss Alive, you know? And I think Chris was probably the, the main one in the band pushing the live album, the concept. And, and like you said earlier with the artwork, I mean, you can really feel his sort of, and I think he's even said, like he was the one kind of putting the thrust behind this album be, becoming a reality. And I'm so glad he did because at the time, I mean, they've got a huge album, and they're going to continue to have success. And, and after the fact, they're going to be around for another like 20 years, but we don't know that at the time. And why not make, make sure yeah. you have a document about this crazy time in your life where, you know, like you're yeah. the, the biggest band, or at least yeah. one of the biggest bands in Canada for sure. And yeah. having all this kind of great success in these amazing shows, why not, you know, document it while it's happening? You know, I mean, I'm sure they wanted the band to go on as long as possible, but you know, you, you know, you want to, you want to document these things. And so in terms of the parallel between Kiss Alive and this one, you know, you have to imagine that there was a little bit of touching up with this album in terms of like just tweaking it and mixing it to make it sound good live. But, you know, the Kiss Alive album is very famous for being resung and reperformed and very much cut oh, together yeah, yeah so so it, regardless of whether there were any tweaks or anything like that on this album it it feels like them playing and you know the thing that i really love about a sloan show is they they sound great you know the songs are all there um but you feel that they kind of have a bit of a, a rumble going on, you know, like it's not, it's not as pristine yeah. as the studio. And, and, and I say that in a good way, like you, because the studio te technically, you know, you, you're generally right. playing to a click and, you know, all of the tracks are kind of cut and pasted in generally if they're not played together live. And so there's like a, a very cleanness to yeah. it. Uh, and with the, with the four nights, album it's it's especially from from my memory it really at the time encapsulated what it was like to see them live that sort of rumble of these four guys getting that's on stage right. and playing this music live together um that's very much present and i love i love the i love the 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 little blips that you get in the scenery as well so you get on sinking ships you can hear chris towards the end falling out of timing on the drums which actually happens live that happens obviously when you're performing a song that's only been that you might have only performed uh 10 times prior to that and so you, you know you get a lot of that on, on the album and you know you touched upon an interesting point there it, it's a good encapsulation of what they were playing at that point in time and it's sort of a time capsule um for posterity but i recall patrick having said at one point and i'm not sure if i saw this in an interview or i'm not sure if it's hearsay and it's probably been passed down through you know multiple generations of sloan fans but I recall there being an anecdote out there that Patrick had said that, you know, this is this is a great point in time to pull out some of our older oeuvre um, because we want to kind of put that phase of Sloan behind us, right? So you can understand if you're if you're the the bigger your 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 documentation becomes, the more albums you have out there, the more you can choose from it. But you also want to perform your new stuff, and this is something that Sloan battles with every time they go on tour, which is why it's great that they're doing double sets now. But back then. You have the underwhelmed screamers. You have the twice removed song screamers who were totally disappointed with what was happening if they didn't hear worried now or something. So I can understand that being frustrating from an artistic standpoint that you just put all this elbow grease into this fucking great album, but you're you're you know, you're kind of peripheral fans are still screaming for a track that you put out when you were twenty-five years old. So I like that because you can kind of also sense, and maybe this wasn't wasn't intention. And I know that they always give their their all uh, live, but you can like listen to Marcus said. Listen to how fantastic that version of Marcus said is on the on the live album. Um, 
they're really just like going balls to the wall performing their older stuff and i know that they've played that a number of times since then i know they all always tend to delve into some of their older stuff every now and then um but there was a certain degree of passion they put into their older works there which if it was then a symbolic wave goodbye to this phase of their career then it certainly happened at the right time and they certainly did it in the right I way i couldn't agree more like a great point i mean they, they played torn at four nights you know what i mean like when was the last time outside of the yeah. late 90s yeah. did that ever pop up in a cellist again and you, you make a great point you know i i this is sort of perhaps this album is them really kind of i mean and at the, this point smeared has only been out for like six years so it's not ancient history but in terms of the 90s it's ancient history well back then it was, yeah right? i feel like the 90s yeah. felt like 30 years or something but you know they've they're playing yeah. and, and what's great about the four nights album especially with the older material like the smeared stuff and even the twice removed stuff for to you know to be kind of poignant about it they it's it's 1998 sloan who are a much stronger live band and not that they weren't strong before, but I mean, they, they're, they're much more capable and they're, they're more of a machine now, you know, they've just come off of the one chord thing. Yeah. They've just done an amazing album with Navy blues and, and this machine that, that is now about to just drop us another bomb the next year, which we'll talk about in a second uh between 98 and 99 that it's it's that band performing though that early material and to be honest with you i i prefer the ver the performances of underwhelmed and marcus said and and, and the and the twice removed songs from four nights to their earlier counterparts on those initial albums like i love those albums and i listen to them and they're great sure. but in terms of like choosing a performance that had that's more alive um, and has some blood flowing through it the four nights performances of those early songs is just like for me in my head you know the penultimate version of that song and i even hear like i mean it's and you don't you don't have you, you don't have you don't have that weird guided by voices production happening all the time right you have you have a sloan you have a you have the sloan sound you have the sloan fingerprint they're playing you know they're they're playing their 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 mature amps jay's got his high watt custom 50 out you know it's they're playing good guitars right it sounds like sloan it doesn't sound like you know whoever teenage fan club it doesn't it, it, that, so that's that's what I we've like talked about or, uh, previously about how you know sloan's sound is kind of solidified in you know maybe the next couple albums but i really for my argument i would suggest that navy blues is where the sloan of today was really born you know like uh smeared is, is, a, is a group of young guys coming from different bands kind of finding their footing and deciding what they're going to sound like and kind of you know mirroring the times a little bit twice removed is them completely flipping the script and embracing their influences in terms of like you know 60s rock like the rolling stones and stuff and the beatles obviously and saying you know we want to make something we want to have this kind of quality songwriting but we want it to sound timeless you know and you know something like twice removed like i've said before 20 years 30s down the line is going to just sound as vital as it did in 94 you know one chord they're a band that is kind of resurrecting from the previous year of kind of turmoil they're making yeah. a fun album just to make an album that sounds fun because that's another thing that i like to talk about too with yeah. people when we're talking about music is you know what what is it about an album that makes it special you know it's the songwriting but it's also how it sounds you know and and the difference between that's a right. band recording an album live off the floor you know like a green day album which just sounds like three guys in a studio just playing whatever and then an album like one chord where you get a song like autobiography where the drums are panned to one side and the accents on the cymbal are on another side very much how production was done in the 60s and stuff and you know that kind of right. technique is, is is done on that album especially 
And by Navy Blues, they're right. a fully realized band, you know, firing all cylinders. And that sort of archetype on Navy Blues is how they're going to sound kind of going forward in, in one way or another, you know? All right. This is a great discussion, but I think it's also a good spot to cut it off and call it a day for episode one. So if you have any feedback, if you want to hear a specific guest or a specific topic that we should cover, or if you just want to share your own Sloan fandom with us on the show, then please reach out to us on Instagram at Sloancast. We'll see you for part two of episode one, where we're going to be taking a deep dive into Between the Bridges. Don't forget also to check out the other podcasts in the Sloan universe, the Sloan Selection podcast, and of course, the new Murder Records podcast, which are available on all podcast platforms. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.